James Stacy, what's what's really your deal? Uh, <laughs> huh? Like, wh- why are you the way that you are? I'm really bored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been bored since the moment I was born. <laughs> By the way, we're not running this. Try, try we, can, we can't run any of this. Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverant and this is Hodinky Radio. Gray, what are we up to this week? This week on the show, we have the next in our series of editor interviews. We've done a few of these uh, already, but this is where we sit down with a member of the Hodinky team and get a sense of their story from them in their own words. Ooh, who are we talking to? Mr. James Stacy. Mr. James Stacy. I think most people listening to this show probably think they know James pretty well. Uh, he's been a part of the Hodinky family for a while. He hosts our sister podcast, The Grey NATO, but there's a lot more to James, uh, from his time growing up in Ontario, Canada, to really pursuing his passion for watches uh, while he had a day job at a cable company, to then quitting that job and pursuing his passion full time, which I think is something a lot of us really dream about, uh, and he's kind of a, a living example of it. Super talented guy, super hardworking guy, super fun guy to be around, and he's got a great story too. Yeah, nobody can tell James's story quite like he can. So uh, how about we just get into this? Hey, you're the boss. This week's episode is brought to you by the Hodinkee Shop. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more about how the Hodinkee Shop is changing the watch buying game. For more, visit shop.hodinkee.com. Mr. James Stacy, man, the myth, the legend. Have we started? <laughs> James Stacy, editor interview. Okay. Coming in real hot. Where did yeah. you get off? Coming in, I would say coming in lukewarm. That's what I do, yeah, lukewarm. Coming in like that lunch that you like put in the microwave for 45 seconds, you take it out, you think it's done, right back in. Well, you're so hungry, you're like, I'll eat it cold. Yeah, whatever, fine. I it's loosened not, it up. It's not cold, cold. Yeah, I loosened it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, so All right, yeah. off to a good start. Um, well caffeinated yeah. stream of consciousness start to what should be a very concise non-rambly podcast this is good <laughs> concise and non-rambly are our specialties right that's what i'm known for yeah uh what you are known for what i think our readers actually know you for is you're a uh, sports watch loving micro brand interested gold curious uh watch aficionado who writes with uh just the right amount of attitude i would say uh, but before that, I want to go back to the beginning and tell people a little bit about your story that they that they might not know the part of your story that was not all over the internet all the time. Uh, where are you from? What's your what's your backstory here? Who yeah. who was James Stacy before he was James Stacy? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I grew up in uh, near Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Wait, you're Canadian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hide it well. It's all about perceptions. Um, but yeah, uh, I grew up, uh, technically for those who know southeastern Ontario, I grew up in a little town called Caledonia. All right. So um, like six people who are listening to this know know what that is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Five plus my mom, for sure. Cool. And uh, yeah, just kind of like I was raised in like a normal middle class household, kids everywhere. When you were that kid growing up, second oldest, 
six kids, small suburban town. Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, what did you think uh, yeah, you were going like, to do? As my mom's pointed out a few times, like, I there's literally like uh, crayon drawings of me taking pictures of sharks underwater. Seriously? Oh, absolutely, Dude, that's for awesome. sure. Yeah. So uh, that would have been, you know, 1991, and in 2015, I guess I actually did that. Hmm. Um, or 2015, 2016. Hard to remember the year. Like again, like we were joking with Ben. I'm sure we're going to cut that segment. Um, we, <laughs> we were joking with Ben. He he walked in while we were sitting here and he asked me like, "What's your deal?" And my deal is kind of like I'm bored. I've been bored all of the time. Just always. Yeah, but like you think like taking pictures of sharks underwater. How are you bored? Driving a car really fast. How are you bored? It's funny because there's all these different passions that I'm interested in, but I'm only interested in the end point. Mm. Like if you think about if you're if you're like, oh well, I, for a while I was going to be a cop. Oh, um, James Stacy cop. Yeah. I I can see that. I don't know if I would have passed some of the like psych evals or, or the rest <laughs> of it. Like <laughs> could you be a Mountie? Uh, I mean that's that's a pretty high end cop, and I think that would have been the goal. Like I think if you're gonna take camera if you're gonna carry a camera around, do it underwater around sharks. If you're gonna drive a car, it might as well be a, a sports car or a race car, an F one car, something like that. And if you're gonna fly a plane, it should be an SR seventy one. And if you're gonna be a cop, you might as well be SWAT or or or, or something to that extent. And I think that would have been the Again, it's it's not so much like I don't I genuinely don't think that it's like an adrenaline thing. It's like a boredom thing. Like I think I was I was born bored, and I'm just kind of fighting. I'm fighting back that trying so hard every day to not be bored. Yeah, for the most part. But I guess I, I don't aspire. I don't. I never aspired to have anything normal. So you you've got the shark drawings, the crayon drawings. But then like you're a little older than that. You're like in high school. You're thinking about what you're gonna do. Like at that age, what are you thinking? Like what's what's when you start actually having to think about like being an adult, like, yeah, what's, sure. what's the plan? So I, I didn't like school and I wasn't very good at it. Um, de- like decent putting a sentence together, but like math was really poor. And of course, like I'm sure lots of people listening know that they're of reasonable middle of the road intelligence, but like had a math teacher tell them that they're an idiot at some point, And that kind of slows you down. Yeah. I had a couple great English teachers, so I really did appreciate the idea that you could take a brain that moves pretty quickly. And I'm not again, it's not like an intelligence thing. It's a pace thing. It's a problematic thing. Uh, I don't think I'm of any exceptional intelligence. I just think I, I like I'm constantly looking for the next hit of whatever from <laughs> yeah this or that yeah and uh, and to slow that down or to make it into something that's like kind of concise. I do you can do through words, which I like quite a bit. Um, and then yeah, I went to university with like zero plan of what to do no real motivation. I just knew that I was kind of like expected to get a BA and I could afford it. I was selling computers at the time. I was always into computers. Um, to make it really quick, if anybody, uh, you know, doesn't want to, doesn't want to dig through the history of my LinkedIn. Uh, I sold computers in university at a, at a, a precursor to what is now Canadian Best Buy or just Best Buy. There used to be Best Buy and Future Shop. And I worked at Future Shop. That's how I put myself through university and paid those sorts of bills. It was actually a pretty lucrative gig if you're like university age and and not really that interested in doing real work. Like I knew a lot about computers, so this was not difficult like to translate that to people. The the economics were in my favor at that time because it was a commission position. So you got paid only if you worked. So I would only have to work enough to know how much I had to work that day because you saw how much you were going to take home. And then also like, it's uh, not that hard in a town with several colleges and universities to sell laptops all summer. They basically sell themselves. So it was like borderline free money. I wasn't flipping burgers, which is, you know, something I had brothers and lots of friends that did. And that was not going to work for my general mentality. Um, I'd worked in a couple fast food places and that didn't last. I was fired. So 
moved into computers. Uh, from computers, I finished up a BA and decided I needed a real job, so I went to a bank. Um, as you can imagine, somebody with like general boredom issues, the bank lasted like 92 days. Uh, from the bank, I wanted not to that you're counting or anything. I did count. I remember I passed my <laughs> passed my probation, <laughs> and they're like, "All right, congratulations, you're a financial sales representative." And I was like, "I could just feel the walls closing in on me. <laughs> I could just feel them." You know that you know that sound that that in two thousand one, a space odyssey, when all the monkeys are are like slamming mm-hmm. bones on the ground and looking at the, that's what I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Um, so that was the bank, and from the bank I went into construction. I was in construction for even a brief, more brief period of time, only because I was injured. I really enjoyed construction a lot, um, but I, I managed to um, cut the end of my pinky finger. It was like the smallest wound that would actually end a construction career for a summer. So I, I, I did cut it with a skill saw. I got, I don't know, 40 or 50 stitches in the tip of my finger. They were able to save the fingernail. I moved on. You don't see these images. You don't see the fingers in any of my wrist shots. It's okay. Okay. Um, so I spent like a summer playing Metal Gear Solid and eating hot dogs with a, a friend of mine who was at the time independently wealthy. Uh, it was a great summer, one of the best of my life for sure. Uh, There's a hot dog truck not that far from my house. I could eat hot dogs with a bandage on my finger. It was good. I like a hot dog. Why not? Anyways, I uh, went from uh, construction into technical support with a cable company in Hamilton. Boy, it's really boring when you just list it. Um, from <laughs> from I was with that company. They were at one point called Mountain Cable. Then they were purchased by like the Comcast of Canada, Shaw Cable. And I was with that company for like seven or eight years. I moved to Vancouver while working with them. And that was the job that I would quit to go essentially full-time freelance a little over two years ago. Yeah. And and so you got to do that amazing thing that people fantasize about at their desks all day. Probably many of them listening to this show is like you had a day job. It was like fine. It was a good day job. Uh, But you had this passion on the side and you were able to kind of like become a part of that part-time and then you were able to quit your day job to do it full-time. So how did you get involved in the sort of like watch community at large and then more specifically sort of like the watch media community? Wasn't there a watch of yours that that was part of the impetus here? You were looking for like replacement parts or to repair a watch of yours and that led you to a a forum or two? Am I making that up? Well, I needed needed to get the um, battery replaced for that uh, Columbia uh, so yeah. that, that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of looking inside a watch and what's in you there. You mind telling then, that story a little bit? Because it's a, it's a, you know, I think a frequent one as far as how folks get into this. They like, you know, look inside the thing and then realize that there's a lot more to explore here. Yeah, for sure. So uh, if you go back a long, long time back into university, I had like a Columbia field watch is what I wore every day. And one day the battery died. And I don't think I had given it a lot of thought as to like what was keeping this thing alive. But uh, at, at the time, if I could, if I could kind of sink my teeth into a new topic, especially one that surrounded product and history and those sorts of things, like watches do such a good job of, I just went down the rabbit hole. You know, this is pre Hodinkee. There was maybe two or three watch blogs. There's Watch You Seek at Time Zone, a couple specialty forums, Poor Man's Watch Forum at the time. Rito was doing some great work there, and you know, went through everything I could read about anything. Uh, this is long. This is when I wouldn't have been working very much during that saw the the, the hot, do- summer. hot dog summer with Jared. Um, <laughs> yeah, summer of eternal sunshine. Um, but the the hot dog I think I read. I think I, yeah, the hot dog diaries for sure. 
<laughs> ah, so many French fries. Um, we, we definitely own the movie rights on this. Nobody sniped this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I eventually found a, uh, a blog called watchreport.com, which is owned by a man named Christian. And I had essentially, in the course of just a few days, read everything that they had published. Like I became obsessed with the idea of mechanical watches, and I was learning the difference between Invictas and Rolexes and Seikos and everything else that you could write about for watches. All these brands I'd never heard of. This is right. I mean, like this is um, spring 2007. Okay. So early days of micro brands, internet micro brands. You've got Ocean 7s around. You have Air Command. You have, or um, uh, Air Nautique. You have just a few of these brands. This is pre-Halios. Like brands that I got really obsessed with years later were just starting. Eventually, I read everything on that site over the kind of summer that I finished university, and then they posted that they were looking for submissions, so I wrote a couple pieces on spec and sent them in, and they published one about Panerai. That would have been my first quote-unquote published piece of watch writing. That would have been my kicking off point to uh, to dip back into watches as a kid. I had been obsessed with like In the Glow and Timex stuff and, and that sort of thing, and uh, mechanical watches came just as I finished university. Yeah, and then you you eventually ended up writing for a blog to watch, mm-hmm. which is when we met. I think you yeah, must have been for working sure. With Would Ariel. have been twenty twelve, yeah, twenty thirteen, something like that. Uh, probably at first Basel um, or around then, uh, like the first Basel that I went to um, is where we would have met. And yeah, so I was with Watch Report for a little while, and they kind of traded owners. I didn't really see in alignment with the next one. And then at the time I had, uh, had, you know, traded some DMS and, and such with the folks at a blog to watch and they were on the West coast. I was in Vancouver. So it worked out as far as, a, a timing and, and kind of proximity scenario. So started writing for them and I was with uh, a blog to watch for like six years. It was awesome. Mm. I learned a ton. They've, uh, Ariel and his team have always been fantastic to me and I have a huge respect for, uh, what they do and how they do it. And then when it looked like it was time for me to, no longer have a kind of normal day job. I was starting to see um, the financial side of, of going out on my own and, and the ability to say have eight or so clients to to make a month make more sense than it did to have a day job and then spend all of my free time and a lot of my time at said day job reading and writing about watches um, mm. kind of as a, as a secondary. You kind of have to do this in a parallel um, until you're at a point where your wheels are almost coming off the ground on their own and then you just kind of yeah throttle up and take the most that you can and uh and at the time that would have been a big split so that would have been leaving a blog to watch but it was also picking up into uh nouveau magazine where i was a editor at large for automotive uh coming on with a you know a certain amount of uh promised work for hodinkee and then some white label work for uh, various jewelers around north america and yeah I, i had kind of a spread at the time nice yeah, I, I mean, before we we fully depart from a blog to watch and come over to to what you were doing when you you started with Hodinkee, um, what's some of the work you did there that you're you're most proud of? Because you really that's where you kind of grew from like an enthusiast writing blog posts to somebody like really doing this like in a in a concerted professional way. Yeah, so the the role was different at, at a blog to watch because I was also involved in producing other types of media. It wasn't just photography and writing. I was shooting and editing a lot of my own, all of my own video reviews for six years, like a long time. It'd be me essentially hugging a camera and and talking and then trying to put that together in various programs later. And I, I learned a lot from that. I would say that the, the kind of like hallmarks that stand out to me would have been um, the Clipperton expedition with Oris. 
which is a 16-day sailing to the most remote coral atoll in the world. So you would think this is the literally the middle of nowhere. So if you look at the base of Cabo San Lucas, the the peninsula, and then just go down until you're essentially west of Nicaragua, that's where it is. Jeez. Middle of the most remote coral atoll in the world. And if uh, visually, if you want to think about it, imagine just, just the tip <laughs> of a volcano came out of the middle of the ocean. Wow. It's fresh water in the middle. Super caustic fresh water. You couldn't have like a cut on your leg or anything or go anywhere near. It's full of bacteria. Mm. 1978, Cousteau and his crew like flew in, set up a whole base camp, went diving in there and like their wetsuits like melted. Wow, oh, shit. It's real gnarly, super gnarly in there. Um, anyways, we so we went there. Uh, it, it was the second. Um, it's now uh, maintained and owned by the French government. At one point, it was an American uh, naval base, which didn't work out very well towards the end of World War II. Um, Mexican ownership previous to that, which also didn't work out that well with a sort of despot that brought a bunch of women there and then they caved his head in with a rock. Um, it's a cool place. Super yeah. remote. Definitely looks like you're kind of like on on a, a different planet if you couldn't see the water, but yeah. you almost never can't see the water. Like it's sometimes it's 100 yards from the fresh water to the ocean. For a long time, it was used for drug running. And now it's kind of like a spot for sport fishing because of course there's some shallow water around it. Um, around this uh, precipice that comes up in in like thousands of feet of water otherwise. Um, but it's all protected and there's a big box around it and they want to extend that box from kind of Clipperton all the way up to the Riviera Gaguetos, which is Socorro. And, and that's kind of due west of Cabo. Um, fantastic diving and that sort of thing. So we did, uh, to give you an idea, like you get on a boat, you get on a boat. I had never like been on the like open, I'd been on some cruises or whatever, like giant boats, but um, you get on a, a boat, it's 90 hours under motor to, before you like see like a couple palm trees stick up out of the ocean. Whoa. So you're just in the middle of nowhere. They're basically like, you can't have an accident. They didn't have an oxygen chamber on the boat. They're like, you need this to be like the chillest diving in the world. Zero risk. If we have to call somebody, it's the Mexican Navy. They're going to come from Socorro. It's four days. So you make an accident, like even an accident where you couldn't stop the bleeding on a relatively like chill wound, which is how the last person died at uh clipperton a few years ago it was like an unlicensed boat and the guy got uh like chopped his leg i think or something like that with a prop like on the back of the boat and they just couldn't stop the bleeding and he died it's too far like the world's a big place <laughs> that's that's a good lesson to learn the you know what i mean is a but this is place. also your dream experience based yeah. on no question you're, i've, you're, I've you're, like you're i've never had i've never been i've never been less stressed than like just living on this boat, eating Mexican food. Yes, dude, your best like, life. I was yeah, diving yeah. four days. I was diving four times a day. I dove until I was getting nosebleeds. Like we were just like, I was diving yeah. as much as possible. I don't have the inner ear kind of pressure scenario for a lot of diving. Yeah. I love scuba diving. I dove a lot um, and, and will continue to do so. But like four a day is a lot. That's like two days at the gym. You're going to get an injury eventually. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, it was heaven. I mean, like I'm out there, like, I'm reading. Because like Gray said, it's it's taking pictures of sharks yep we were in the water with sharks it was my first time like in the water well uh, that's not true I, we, we did some shark stuff in in hawaii it was my first time like where you were you were with sharks that maybe hadn't been around people okay uh so not sharks on a wreck that's frequented by divers every day yeah like lsu and waimanalo bay in hawaii that's the, probably the closest i came to like you could just the black tip reef sharks everywhere but these were uh galapagos and silver tips and hammerheads and huge mantas and uh like giant muscly like Arnold Schwarzenegger dolphins that are out there in mm -hmm. Socorro. Uh, and, and, and just like an experience to end all experiences for me. Like it changed the tire, it changed the taste in my mouth for the rest of my life. Like I loved being out on the edge of nothing. I love that my phone didn't work. That's so cool. 
Yeah. And then, um, so, I mean, that, that post, uh, exists today on, uh, on a blog to watch and I'm sure we can link it, but it's a, you know, uh, several page long look at both the trip and a couple watches that I dove actively dove with, um, a couple of watches, of course. And, uh, one, one of my favorite things you did at a blog to watch and something I think you were working on it when we met was, uh, the like super intense Basel world vlogging that you were doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, that was something I'd always wanted to do because I thought there was this huge deficit of trying to explain the environment of Basel world. We can mm-hmm. talk about the watches so easily and so well, it's like, that's what you have to do in this. And you can take a picture of the hall and like maybe 5% of your readership has been to a trade show and they understand the format. But even this is, it's its own thing. It's dip, like I used to, I grew up going to car shows. I've been to a ton of car shows. It's kind of like car shows, but it's also kind of not because watches are so tiny. And, and yeah. so it, it, it's kind of like a weird space where a whole weird fake town springs up. And like, it, it's one thing like, because if it's cars, then you need a huge amount of space, but really you can put a lot of brands in what isn't a ton amount, of, a ton of space. I mean, at one point it was seven or 8,000 exhibitors. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, huge. All, all told. And some of them have like a closet and some of them have like uh, the square footage of a motel six. Yeah. Um, depending on how much money and what, what their name brand is. Right. And, uh, I wanted, I wanted to try and like capture what it was not only to go and cover it, but to walk around that space and stay at that pace for five or six days in a row. And we, we did it at SIHH and and it went pretty well, but I don't know if it's something I would go back to again, simply because it was just one of the hardest things I've ever done in Mm -hmm. over a span of time. It was you know, it's 20 hours, you know, you, you spend maybe eight hours of your day at the show, you spend the rest of the time editing and cutting and doing the images and writing the posts still have to go up and then you'd get to the, doing the video. You hear that folks video ain't easy. All right. All right. Corona over here. Uh, all my points. Yeah. You did all that for a blog to watch and I probably every three to four months would call you or text you and try to figure out how we could get you over here. Uh, finally, like you said, when you decided to go full time with this, we were to, we were able to make this thing happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you've been with us now, what, like almost two years over two years. Uh, yeah. I mean in different capacities, but yeah, I think it would be a a little over two years, a little over two years. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you've done some pretty cool, pretty cool work here over that time. If I uh, may say so myself, I've been very fortunate with, uh, the, the, the stories that you guys have, have kind of lobbed right, right into my plate. I wonder, are there any that just like stand out to you immediately? Like off the top of your head is like your personal favorites. Like the ones, if you were putting a portfolio together, like the stuff you'd put in there and say like, this is my best work. This is the stuff I'm super proud of. Yeah, I think the the BBGMT project, which I can claim a piece of, Gray, Gray claims another big piece of that. But that was, you know, that was our yeah, you goal. You have to give him, taking, have to give him uh, credit. Taking, and, and Stephen, I mean, you're on that trip too and facilitating a lot of what we did and it's a team lift. Anytime you see something that includes some video, oftentimes here in the office, anytime you see any post, had a couple people working on it, whether it's copy yeah. editors, photographers, et cetera. It's true. But with something like that, we really swung for the fence. So we went, we leaned pretty hard into the sort of uh, Bourdain-esque aesthetic, or not even an aesthetic, but that overall format, because we were talking about a travel watch and we already were doing some traveling. So there was a lot of like things that line up. And people say to me all the time, you guys should do more like that. And they don't realize like, it's vastly expensive, like insanely expensive. If we were doing that just to talk about one watch, we were doing a bunch of podcasting and a bunch of other meetings and a bunch of other content production. So it was like amortized across several different kind of outlets. Yeah. And, and, and series. But that shoot took, it was what, over the course of six days? Mm-hmm. Six days in three cities? 
Well, I mean, the the, the shoot, it, yeah, the shoot itself was was limited to San Francisco, and then we recorded a whole bunch of voiceover in L.A., and then a whole bunch yeah. of B-roll was shot in New York. Um, I, I think, in addition to the expense, I think the the lifestyle element of that shoot it's it's a it's a swing or miss like proposition. Totally, um, I think we've we've released some weeks on the wrist where we forced the lifestyle element, and it and it didn't fit the watch, it didn't fit the editor's personality. And the audience could tell. This is one where, like, in the moment, you kind of felt like things were coming together. James had a great concept for the watch. It's a very cool watch itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, San Francisco as a backdrop ain't, ain't too shabby. Yeah, I mean, James, like, taking a ferry and going for a hike in the Marin Headlands. Yeah. Wearing a sport watch, taking a bunch of pictures, field jacket on, like, stopping for a glass of whiskey in the mission at the end of the day. Like, that's... That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good summary of what that watch is, what it should be doing, uh, and kind of how to live with that product. And the the B roll that ended up on the uh, the cutting room floor, lots of lots of good material that might make its way to uh, sizzle reel at some <laughs> okay. point, or or, okay. or or blackmail either okay. way. Yeah, could, I mean, hey, both both on that project for sure. I mean, both on any project I work for. Sure. Um, yeah, same, same. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I th- I think stuff like that, like the, there's some big week on the wrist that I'm pretty proud of, the Explorer. Uh, piece from last year I think came together really nicely and that's a fun watch to write about because there's so much like hyper accessible history with the Explorer yeah like with the BBGMT there there was no precursor they were it's essentially like Tudor looking back at the concept of a Rolex travel watch and making their own expression and I think they did a beautiful job within that framework but when you're talking about the Explorer you're talking about like the sports watch so there's just so much meat on those bones. You can go yeah. in 10 different directions with it. And we were able to kind of lean a little bit into the space of like the reference points with, you know, talking about each generation. And uh, and then, yeah, just, just like a, a solid look at a sweet watch. Um, That's one that I, the thing that impressed me as one of the editors who worked on that project with you is when you filed that, I was like, I have... I have no idea where this is going to go, right? Because like you said, there's so much accessible history and there's mm-hmm. so much there. The, the hard part of that story is not knowing what to include. It's knowing what not to include. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you did a really good job on that kind of like pulling out, like contextualizing this, that like this is a review. This is not a full historical guide to the Explorer. This is the history you need to know to appreciate the watch you can go buy in the store. Yeah, it's it's context and it had an air of practicality to it. Uh, and you made the watch feel, I think, less like a sort of like, quote unquote, like iconic thing that like sits in a display case and you have to be reverent about and more like a super cool thing that like if you have the money and are at all inclined to buy it, you should probably just go out and buy it. Like you're going to love it. It's awesome. This week's episode is brought to you by the Hodinky Shop. The Hodinky Shop was created by watch lovers for watch lovers. It started way back in 2012 with a handful of watch straps and travel pouches, and it's grown to include dozens of strap options, tons of travel accessories, the best watch books and magazines, outstanding vintage watches, and some of the most desirable modern watches on the market today. It's truly a full-service destination for anyone interested in watches. In addition to stocking the products you want, the Hodinky Shop is committed to making the discovery and buying process itself as fun and convenient as it can be. You can browse and shop anywhere in the world directly on your computer, tablet, or smartphone, and the incredible photographs ensure you get a vivid, accurate look at whatever you're considering. It doesn't stop there, though. Once you've ordered a watch, you can count on complimentary, expedited shipping to get it to you as quickly as overnight. 
An extra year of warranty is included at no additional charge, and all of your paperwork is stored digitally, so you don't have to sweat losing those precious papers. Importantly, when it comes to modern watches, the Hodinkee Shop is an official authorized retailer for all brands it carries. This means you're guaranteed to be getting a brand new, fully authentic watch with its full warranty. There's no funny business at all. The experience is truly best in class from top to bottom, and it's what the Hodinkee Shop thinks 21st century luxury is all about. To learn more and to take a look at the full range of watches, accessories, and more, visit shop.hodinkee.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Can I ask the two of you a question? Yeah. So if you are giving advice to like a prospective watch journalist, or I guess any kind of writer covering, you know, product for enthusiast media, how do you guys approach writing a week on the wrist or hands-on? If you're handed a watch, what are, what are the initial thought processes as you come up with, with your angle? Hmm. My, my, I always just look for a bit. Because I think I think all you're asking for is for someone to read it and like the things they want to know about the watch aren't that interesting. The size, the movement. Like I think it's all important. Yeah. But like I think I think it's adding anything more that would keep someone reading past paragraph three when I'm gonna put the size of the watch in. Or maybe if I'm getting like feeling zesty, it'd be in paragraph four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so like could I could I make it and I, I don't think funny, but could I make you smile? Could I make you think about something you haven't thought about in a couple years? That's kind of a favorite move of mine. Mm-hmm. Like some not non sequitur, but if I can make like a hard turn into something from my childhood, I'll make that turn, even if it's just a throwaway sentence. Mm-hmm. Because it's what I like when I read stuff from my favorite automotive writers. It's that they can they kind of it's, it's not so much this whole like weaving a tapestry, but it's like there's there's a road and there's a direct way to write something like a, there's a straight line. That's your press release. Uh, press releases are never straight lines. They're <laughs> yeah, they're really in the clouds of their <laughs> squiggles. But um, yeah, but there's you know, there's a straight line, which is just the specs and the price and, and some nice photos. And that's where you have to start with straight line. But like, yeah. I want to take you, I want to take you off the highway. We're going to go down a couple of good roads. We're maybe going to go a little bit too hard into a couple corners, make a couple mistakes, cross the yellow line a couple times and then get, get pulled back. over. Well, it could happen. Yeah, for sure. With me, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think like can basically how can like, I don't write for, I, I do obviously write for Hodinkee, but I think Hodinkee's goals and my goals are aligned to such that I don't have to be concerned about that connection, mm. but I don't write for a brand. Um, I'm not genuinely concerned if, if a PR person is going to write me and say like, why did you say this? This doesn't make any sense. That's a dumb reference. Why would you connect my $50,000 watch to a fast food burger? Like what, whatever, whatever move you made, like, I don't really care. Like Has that I happened just, without a doubt. <laughs> um, but I, I do really care that if somebody would read it, that they're at least entertained. Yeah, no, like, I agree. Think about everything else that you're that that ping notifies on your phone, which I consider to be like you know your push notification is like your holy grail of what you would you believe you would like to hear. Yeah, and so much of it is just like depressing hard truths about reality. And I'm not saying ignore those. That's the way I operate. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but maybe when it comes to things of enthusiast topics, just have fun with it. Yeah. Try and have a fun, try not to be too serious about it. I definitely try not to take my, myself too seriously. Like I take the work really seriously, but I don't think like, I don't think I'm doing anything that anyone else here couldn't do. Yeah. No, I honestly, I think about it really similarly to that. Like I tell people all the time, we are as much entertainers as we are journalists and reporters. Like most of us have some kind of journalist journalism training, um, or sort of like, 
some kind of guidance in like how to report out a story, how to do this kind of like in a way that's ethically sound, in a way that's structured, whatever. And like that stuff's all important to being able to get stuff right and do it and, and like present it in a way that's sort of palatable for people. But ultimately, like we, I, I don't think like me telling you about the Rolex Explorer is going to like make the world a better place. But like I can put a smile on your face and that makes the world a better place. Or, or, or you know? it's a half an hour, 40 minutes or whatever, where you like you're not worried about your, yeah, de- your deadline for the day or whatever. And like that's that's really my only goal. Yeah. I would say that the thing that it took me more than a decade to learn is there is a point where you can you can have the fun in the article without presenting any bias. So I can have as much fun writing an article and hopefully the person would in, would see that fun I have in making it and have no impression of whether or not I actually care for the watch. I can like it. I'm never, I would never buy it. But like being able to write about anything with the same effect as writing about something you really like, like an Explorer is super easy. That's not a hard ask. Right. No, no, and no. I, I typically get handed a lot of watches that I already am on that side of it. Like I'm on their team. I would stand for said watch. But the skill where it's a job, where it's like something you, you can kind of work out is having a perspective about something that you're personally not that interested in. And the perspective is more than this sucks because X, Y, Z, this sucks because I feel this way, this way, or this way. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit more of an appreciation for competition. That's one of my favorite things to write about when I do a, a hands-on is I used to only think in terms of price, mm-hmm. but it's so much weirder than that. It, people buy things on, like specifically you have to look at like, okay, so if this watch exists in this realm, what might somebody actually cross shop with it? And the spread could be thousands of dollars in any direction yeah. because the person's buying way more for emotion than they are for what it costs. If it costs, we'd all wear Iron Man. Like it's it's not a it's not a money thing. And that's like people will go into the comments and say, like, I can't believe this is fifty grand. And I'm like, you need to say there's another half of your sentence. I can't believe this is fifty grand because this is thirty five. I can't believe this is five grand when this is fifteen hundred. And if those two things have like the same appeal and could speak to the same buyer, then I buy you. But if you just say I can't believe this is fifty grand because I hate it, you're at a starting point, not an ending point. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I think your point about kind of like what we do for a living that people may or may not understand uh, is like our goal with most stories. I would say the the. Not full exception, but partial exception would be things like Week on the Risk because those are real reviews. Is like when we write a hands-on story or even a value proposition story or whatever, like it's not a review. Like, and we don't call them reviews for a reason. Like it is service journalism. Like what we are trying to do is give you a sense of what this thing is, a sense of if you're the sort of person who might be inclined to like it, why you either would or would not like it. Like, what are the pluses, what are the minuses? provide some sense of objectivity. Of course, our own tastes creep in, and that's a good thing, I think. You know, some personality never hurts. But, like, we're, we're not writing a full review, like, positives, negatives, technical analysis of every single watch that comes out for good reason. And a lot of that is, like, you don't need to purchase a mechanical wristwatch for those reasons. Like, there's a reason why car reviews are so important is because like a car has safety features. A car is a thing that you like put your three-year-old in the back of and drive down the highway at 60 miles an hour in. It's a thing that gets you to your job. It's like there are stakes with a car. Whereas like with a watch, it's ultimately, yes, it costs a lot of money. And yes, like it's a thing you should be invested in in some way. 
But like, it's really about having fun and it's really about enjoyment and it's really about participating in sort of like a shared culture together. Yeah. It's an emotional purchase. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, not a practical one. You, you buy a car for a practical reason. If you're very lucky, you get to buy cars for emotional reasons or, totally. or you buy art or you buy you. If you're in a position to buy things for emotional reasons, it just makes sense to have somebody who might be in the same emotional headspace as you yeah. give you a run of the land. And I think that's the point. That's yeah. the point of reading, of seeing everything we post in the span of the week, reading the stuff that's important to you yep. and, and, and might speak to you. And occasionally just attaching yourself to a writer who you think might be on your side. If you were to sit down at the bar, that'd be the guy you'd end up talking with for the whole night and just reading everything that they read because they're going to expand your your position. This is how I've learned about cars. This is how I've learned about music. This is how I learned about movies yeah. is attaching to personalities that I think I'm like 90% of the time I know what they're going to, what direction they'll go on something. And when they, when it's that 10% and they, they turn left and I was thinking, right, you learn something. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I, w- I want to make sure we touch on, I mean, we've talked a lot about this, like theoretically uh, kind of engaging with watches as a professional, but like also you, you own watches, you buy watches. Um, common common myth and i think we've dispelled this on every one of these editor interviews is like we do not get piles of free watches like the watches you see us wearing here are almost without exception watches that we have paid for and in almost all cases paid full price for um so like i want i want to know a little bit about your watch collecting so when what what is kind of the first watch you remember buying and being like this was this was an important thing uh the like either an SKX 007 or, or a Black Monster. Okay. Uh, it was early 7S based Seiko stuff. At one point, you know, I would I would just buy pretty much anything that was like easily easy to buy. Okay. It was just a question of like getting an idea for what was good just because 100 people on a, what you should buy under $150 said that this is what you should get. Like my risk could be different. My tastes are different. I wanted anything that glowed in the dark. You know, that was a dive watch. This is pre pre my time actually scuba diving. Um, and then the rest of it is just like, I would follow whims. It could, it could be the whim of another, of another person, like somebody else who has a bunch of stuff and you would borrow something from them and kind of learn a little bit. But a lot of it was just like discovery and and when you don't have to buy insurance for them and you don't have to put them in the garage and you don't have to put fuel in them and you don't have to like, there's like the maintenance costs and the general living costs of watches until you're at a very high price point where like you do need to insure them and put them in a garage of some sort, a safe or whatever until you're at that point. It just isn't that expensive of a hobby aside from what you actually decide to spend things on, spend money on the actual watch. There's not a lot of like ancillary costs, some shipping occasionally. Um, so it was just a question of like how, how much could I get in a few years? Okay. And then how did your, how did your collecting grow from there? Like what, what were the kind of like stages of evolution and when do we start getting into watches that are like staples of your collection now? Yeah. I mean, I still, I still have my SKXs. Uh, I think those are rad. I wear them a lot. Um, you know, my taste very much went towards say 40 ish millimeter steel GMT watches of which I've owned a lot. Um, but eventually, eventually you hit an end game of some sort of a watch that you don't want to get rid of. You don't want another one of, and then for me, that would have been, you know, three ish, four years ago, uh, my Explore two. Yeah, which is a, a white dial sixteen five seventy. It's my favorite Rolex of, of any modern concept at all. It's a thin. It's a, the older, smaller case. Uh, this is a much later example, so I don't have the drilled lugs or the creamed out loom plots. But I get a thirty one eighty six. So you get nice anti magnetic uh, capabilities. Uh, kind of the 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 last version of that watch. And I mean, they were 
I used to be able to recommend them because they cost like three grand. Uh, you know, th those days are over now. So uh, other than that, yeah, it's pretty much that. I got my hands. Uh, I always have a kind of stack of steel sport watches floating around. I got a big thing for Doxa, especially with the 50th anniversary. That's what I'm wearing now, one of, one of mine. And uh, the, their 50th anniversary, I think, is like one of the sweetest watches under... I don't know. It's, it, I think it sold for twenty two fifty. So it's one of the sweetest watches under twenty two fifty one in existence. Uh, <laughs> it's just like it's such a good watch. It's pure charm. Uh, I know that's not an amount of money that like everyone can go out and pony up for a watch, and, and I recognize that extensively. And so does Doxa. They now make a watch for about nine hundred bucks. Um, but I would say the real acceleration in my understanding of watches came by the kind of the the timing in which I entered really caring about watches was also a time when all of these micro brands started to pop up. So you got to experience good and bad watches really quickly. Um, and, and the, the rate of evolution of some of these brands, the brands that have been able to keep yeah. their heads above water is, is exceptional. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, but like the, the micro brand thing has become something of a calling card for you. Uh, you know, the Halios of, of the world. What is it that you find enticing? Cause there are certain collectors who, who are like diehard all in on micro brands. And there are other people who are like, nah, I'm going to stick to the kind of like big boys. In, um, what, what do you like about it? In many ways, I would say that in the last two or three years, my taste towards the entire concept has soured pretty extensively. I think that what used to be supported by small groups of pure experts on watch you seek and time zone, you know, the birth of brands like, uh, like ocean seven and Halios and, um, Benares and so many of these brands, that, some of which are still around uh, and, and doing quite well, those were those were vetted by people who were already deep in the game. As soon as it started to become something that was vetted by Indiegogo or Kickstarter, I have a lot of trouble feeling comfortable recommending product that I don't think is actually final product. And I get you get pretty tired of, of being told like, no, this is it. And then you get it in. And you're like, well, this is kind of weird. And they're like, yeah, it's not done yet. I mean, like the, the Kickstarter thing's still going. So, you know, we're only at a million dollars and we'll see how it sorts out. And you're kind of like, all right, well, eventually if I do this enough times, because personally I've been burned on Kickstarter for other, I'm actively being burned on Indiegogo right now <laughs> um, for a product, which I don't think I'm ever going to get. And that's maybe $150. And that bums me out. So imagine, imagine, if, imagine if there's a me, a, a 20 year old, guy that's just getting into watches and he write he reads something on Hodinkee about how this Kickstarter watch is awesome for $450 and then that he puts down his $450 it's all the money he's got for watches for a long time maybe maybe he sells a couple watches that he loves to get it and then that brand torches itself or just shuts down it says like too bad and that owner on the other side he pockets 150 grand or whatever whatever the total was and files a few papers and starts another watch brand because there's not many cases where we know everybody's name. Like I, with Halios, I know Jason. With uh, brands like Raven, I know Steve. Like these are, I came up with these guys to some extent. So I, I have some faith that if I say like, yeah, if you put in the time and spend your 900 bucks on their watch, like you're going to be really happy. Yeah. And, and I genuinely don't believe like short of a complete breakdown of all the systems that keep these things in play, that they would, that they would burn the credibility that they use 10 years to get. Whereas you have other brands, it's their first watch and they get half a million dollars or something on, on Indiegogo and like, good luck. And I just worry, I worry that like the, the world where, where it's the same, I just think it requires so much more scrutiny than it did a few years ago. Hmm. So when we do it now, I think it's gotta be as thoughtful as possible. I want final product. 
um, you know, like a, a brand. It's nice when it's a brand that you've you've seen them produce some other things like Baltic. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're making some great stuff. So there's not ex- I'm not saying that there's not examples now that are worth the same adoration and and, and affection and support and, and coverage as as a, a Halios or whatever. But I think that it is a market where there's so many more players than there used to be. Yeah. Like think, think about those, you know, you, Steven, you're a sports fan. Think about those times when you get teams, multiple teams in one city pop up. Yeah. They don't all stay around. They got to move somewhere else or they go away. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily that different for these watch brands. And the thing that bothers me again is there's not a lot of accountability in being able to follow the, yeah, mon- no, the totally. money to some extent totally. where if it fails, you go like, all right, but like, we know who that guy is. Maybe, maybe he can make a right to the 50 people, but it's not 50 people anymore. 20 people. It's like, it can be a lot of people that get yeah. burned. So that, I've, that weighs on me a lot. Every time that I get another email from a brand, you're like, this watch looks cool. It's the right size. It's got an okay movement. And then you own their website and you're like, I don't know, you've definitely not made anything any b- before. And like, you're definitely sending out prototypes that aren't made in the same place that the final case and dial and everything are going to be made. Like, if you show me final, I'm 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 interested, uh, but I'm very cautious these days. Interesting. I think one of one of the other things that that has changed in your watch taste that I've just seen as an outside observer is uh, you mentioned you have just like piles of forty millimeter steel sport watches. Uh, you're now all about gold watches. Yeah, that's been the latest, and I think it's you know it's it's having it's having a couple steel sport watches that feel like an end game to me like there there might be some that i want more than an explorer too but we're talking about they them cost like we're talking about uh 39 millimeter daytonas which i can't afford i'm not going to be able to afford soon i'm not didn't couldn't afford when they were cheap like there, so like within the world of what i can actually buy um I, th- I think like setting my sights on something that's far away but attainable and and i can work up to and learn a whole new side of watches mm-hmm. is all is valuable on, on multiple levels. But I do, you know, there's a few watches that I've tried on in the last few years where you put them on and it's like a whole different feeling, like a, a, a new, like a new emotion, new color. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, it also gives you something new to learn. And I wonder, you know, you came to this as a watch enthusiast first, how has doing this as a full-time job changed your relationship to watches because it's it's not a hobby anymore like this is this is how you put food on the table yeah i think to a certain extent like uh, like for people who know me know that like at a certain point like i i trend towards being jaded about most things fair i try not to make that my outward voice on a granado or or when i write because i don't think there's not there's not a great connection between having an opinion and having a negative opinion so on the internet it's a lot easier to have a negative opinion and make it seem like you're you're saying things other people aren't saying, but it could also be that that entire perspective could be regressive. You could be holding back other people from their best decisions, from their best work, from the best possible advice, from a wider perspective in general. You know, there, there is that kind of like, I'm angry, everybody must be angry, or I think this is dumb, so everybody must. And, and when I really don't like something, I try and read 10 other opinions about it to try and see where, where they lie. And some things are actually bad. And, and some things aren't. So I, I do try and like, I would say like on whole, a lot of the, the general scope, like it's such a big thing now watches and it was always big. It's just, I've, I've moved my way into the bigger part of it, uh, you know, through maybe smaller tributaries on my way. But it's uh, at, at some point I, I tire of the structure. 
Do you experience uh, watch photography Stockholm syndrome where you spend enough time with a product shooting it that by the end of like a full day locked in a closet with the watch, suddenly you find yourself falling for it a little bit? I, I don't think I've ever had that scenario. I, I think like um, I've definitely liked watches more by the time I was done shooting them or I've, I've liked them a lot less. But it usually comes down to how easy or how hard they are to shoot. The If, if, the, mm. if I'm getting really yep. nice work out of them, then I, I feel like... I like them better, um, but that might be pretty face versus personality. Um, I, I would say that for for the most part, shooting a watch is where I learn the most about it because there are these kind of obsessive details, especially when you go to edit the photos. Yeah. Um, which is such a huge part of the way that you, you have to present, in my opinion, that you present watches online is... is it's a sort of like sustainable format. So someone could go from one of your pieces to another and have like this kind of unified concept of what watches actually look like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's the goal because it's, it, it is genuinely isn't that hard to make really beautiful images of watches. Uh, their Instagram is full of them, but it's a different thing to make. I think it's a different thing. It's a little bit, it's a different thought process to make something that, that is editorial, editorially sound. Yes. Um, as far as what it captures. Um, and, and that means like if the watch is very reflective, maybe don't go to every extent to remove that crystal because the watch is going to be reflective on that person's wrist. No, I, I find that the photography is absolutely my favorite side of this whole thing. And uh, it's definitely the way in which uh, I, because so much of like just picking up a watch and putting it on my wrist is about the emotion that I feel behind whatever it is, like however it makes me feel, I can miss a lot of weird details about watches that I'll notice later. Mm. When you go to edit it, you start to see the fonts, you start to see some of the like spacing and proportions and, and you'll even go in and start, I'll do little masking and then realize like, well, this side of the case, it's asymmetrical. Then I'll realize like, oh, the case is asymmetrical because look at this circle doesn't actually sit in the middle yeah, yeah. Of, of where you expect it to. So there's little design things that like I'm, I get better at over time, but a lot of it I discover in, in photography in that part, in that side of it. It's funny, you, you said that the photography helps you with like sort of the technical details, but you know, the, the other side of things is, are those feelings that you said you get when you kind of experience a watch, right? And you know, that's one of the things that we wanted this show to be about from the beginning is sort of like the feelings around watches, the culture around watches. Um, and it's something that you've been doing for a while too on the Grey NATO, right? Like we have two podcasts here at Hodinkee, both ostensibly quote unquote, like watch podcasts, but neither one of them is really a watch podcast per se. Like they're both shows that talk about watches and in which the people on them talk about watches, but they, they both deal a lot more with that, like the sort of less tangible aspects, right? Yeah. I think, I think like great great is largely just Heaton and I, like, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be a whole lot more than that. We occasionally, like we've, we've tried to do interviews with other people and like they go okay they're fine like you can tell by the numbers that people largely prefer 45 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes of heat and i rambling about watches and a few other things that we like yeah and and it's mostly and and, and what i've learned is that there's nothing specifically special about heat and i aside from the fact that we're willing to make the podcast mm -hmm. because i get emails from people who are into the same stuff at a higher degree than i am constantly i mean like the at gmail.com it's just it's a constant influx of like mental and perspective support from these people who just like the same things. And, and these aren't rational things to like for the most part. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I that's you like them because I, I don't like, I just do this. It's like why, why one, one food tastes better to me than another. It's 
It's not a decision. It's just, yeah. it's wiring. I mean, that's the other side of this, right? Is like your, your passion for quote unquote, like these things extends way beyond watches, right? Cars, uh, film, whiskey, uh, adventure. Like what, what, what are some of the other things that you would say you're, you're sort of like most passionate about? Yeah. I mean, I, I love podcasts. So the, like, that's been my, probably my prime piece of media since university, like since the early days, of like this week in tech and uh, Dignation and, yeah. and these sorts of things. Like it, it was the easiest way to be like nerdy while doing a second thing, driving, uh, pretending to pay attention in a lecture, uh, doing laundry, et cetera. Like you could, I could, I could keep up the pace yeah. of like not being bored by listening to experts tell me about things that otherwise I would have to sit and read and be focused on a sentence, yeah. a word, et cetera. Um, and, and, and I love, I love podcasting for that. And, and I have, and will continue to, uh, devour as much as I uh, have time to listen to, uh, beyond that, uh, you know, uh, learning and getting more and more into, uh, photography at, at a wider level and certainly, yeah, film, I adore cars. That's, that's my most irrational love. Uh, what's irrational about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's two different things because when it comes to cars, and, and I'm sure there'll be a couple people listening who remember me or know me from automotive press trips. Like I don't, I've not owned a bunch of cars. I, I'm not a car collector. I'm, um, I'm a, uh, like I would say a deep problematic enthusiast. It's the first news I read every day. It's the stats that I will remember when I die is like, I got to write my McLaren F1 story for volume five. Yeah, you did. These are like, these are moments you close the door on a McLaren F1 and press that start button. And like, I felt something that none of you that I can't explain to any of you that are listening. I only, I actually think the only next level for that like boredom kill would be like dropping the throttle on an SR71, which is literally, literally never going to happen. No amount of money could get me there. Attempt to explain that sensation to those of us like myself who are not gearheads. First, like ma- first car magazine I ever got was from like a, a, a close family friend. Uh, his name's Steve. Steve will definitely be listening to this. Um, Shout out to Steve. Yeah, Steve's the best for sure. But he gave me uh, a 1992 road and track with the McLaren F1 on the cover. And it has always been like... That car deserves every bit of praise. It. I've never driven one. I probably won't. I probably came as close as I would for that story. But it's a you know fifteen million dollar car. You don't need some jabroni driving it who's popped up from a watch magazine. And uh, that's not. I don't at all mean that as any sort of complaint. I, I don't need. I don't think I need to drive one. I've I've loved this from the moment that I could like conceptualize half the words written by the person. I was like six five or six when it came out and uh and it's just something that i love but it's also something where like i know it's like actively as a human being with like i can adopt other perspectives i know it's dumb to love a car i know it's dumb to a certain extent to like have legitimate like passion about something like watches but i can't help it and and furthermore i'm at the point where i'm not definitely not going to try i'm going to counter argument you here i don't think it's dumb at all whether it's a car or it's watches or it's sneakers or sports or furniture or anything else, stamps, coins, whatever, like whatever you're into. I just don't think you get to pick. Yeah, I don't think you get to it's, pick. I'm think, hardwired. Like yeah, I've, I think, I've always been a, a nature versus nurture, but when it comes to cars, when it comes to watches, when it comes to like sharks or fish tanks or uh, like hiking or what, like it's just this is what I'm wired to do. I'm, I'm not saying it's good or bad it, it, because I feel like it exists outside any concept we can add to it. You like what you like. I agree. And I think the reason that it's not stupid is that 
these things push you to connect with something outside yourself, yeah. whether that's with nature and the world around you, or it's with other enthusiasts or with the people who make things like things carry a tremendous amount of meaning. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's this attitude that, that I think some people have that like stuff is stuff and it's meaningless. And to be interested in things is somehow shallow and dumb, but like ultimately things carry meaning because we as humans put meaning into they them and we it. take meaning out of them. And like, that is tremendously meaningful. And like, whether it's, you know, a car that like brought you to a new place to meet new people, or whether it's a watch that when you put it on, it makes you think of what somebody on the other side of the world was doing with it 60 years ago when they bought it or 65 years ago when somebody was making it Mm -hmm. like that's, that's a good thing. It teaches us to be outside of ourselves. It teaches us to be open to new experiences. It teaches us to be curious. Like I think these things are in a very non-dumb way, like really tremendously meaningful with the caveat that like that is as long as you have that sort of perspective on yeah. them. Like if you're the sort of person who just wants to, you know, hoard expensive things for the sake of hoarding expensive things, like one could make an argument that maybe that's kind of dumb. But like I think when you have the sort of enthusiasm and when you say like I sat in this car and I pushed the ignition and like I felt something, yeah, like, and like, that's, like, like that's, that's a good thing. Like that's a good feeling. And I think for me like – what it comes down to it, the way that I would explain it to someone who, who would make, who could make a fair point that like, these are weird things to attribute extreme passion to versus like other people or art, for example. Um, I would say like my, my wiring leads me to extreme obsession for entirely non-casual things. So if it's a car, it's a McLaren F1 made by a genius, developed by four people um, decades ahead of its time. If it's a plane, it's the SR-71 developed by a genius, the finest manager that's ever lived, uh, inclusive of any Ford. And 50 years ahead of its time, maybe. I mean, like designed on a napkin before computers could tell you if something would be fast. They couldn't actually buy enough titanium to make it. So they had to make shell companies to st- buy the titanium from the Russians, which they would then fly over the Russians to take pictures of them. It's just the best thing because they made no concessions for the fact that it might be dumb. And like a really great watch makes no concessions for the fact that it's anything other than a really great watch. And that's what a really great supercar is. It's like you you sit in a McLaren 720, which is the car in my Leica video. It's a thing I'm obsessed with. I don't typically like find a huge amount of like emotional investment in a modern vehicle. I have a huge emotional investment to the way they make me feel when I drive too fast. I like I like a car that makes my hands shake when I stop or like my hands sweat. Like mm-hmm. take like right to that point yeah. where like I know I'm not a great driver and I'm I'm totally fine with that. That's okay. But like you go you do a, a four three in a brand new DBS on some Austrian back road to get around, you know, a fiat that's not moving fast enough. If that doesn't make like your pupils dilate, we are not the same human. We're we're like we're we've evolved in different directions. And I'm not definitely not more evolved <laughs> because these th- that device that device for that little bit of feeling it gave me burned a bunch of hydrocarbons with a huge V12 engine and made a bunch of noise that probably bothered a bunch of birds and butterflies nearby. And I actually care about the birds and butterflies too, so it's like a conflicted person thing. But like I can't. There's no way for me to explain it beyond the fact that it's like yeah, I can't explain it. Yeah, I just love it. I love well, it because I love it. One of the things I want to ask you about is you know you're. We talk a lot about how like car guys and watch guys, it's a lot of the same people. There's a lot of overlap, whatever. 
you've touched both these worlds professionally. And in my very limited experience touching these worlds professionally, since uh, I've had my driver's license for less than two years. I've never seen you drive. I've never driven on a highway. Uh, I nominally drive. Um, yeah, so, but in my, my little experience and from just chatting with you, my understanding is that like in reality, at least in the media space today, like these worlds are actually very, very different. No? Super different. Yep. How? Yeah, I mean, like what makes these things different and what makes them the same for that matter? I think that so much of the automotive world is looking towards electrification that, which will be their okay. courts scenario. Um, and I think like, it's funny because watchmaking was around for a long time, pocket watches and such. And then it had big changes in terms of the ability for everyone to be able to buy one. Right. Which of course happened to cars eventually. And then it became something where people who had more money could buy something that was vastly more performance oriented or design oriented or made by someone who's just willing to say that it costs more. And then you go through rapid development of resources and and technology, usually through a war that happened to both at the same time. But I would say watchmaking was less affected than automotive was by the war. Shortages in steel, things like that, like really, really had an impact. And then post-war, you had this huge boom, especially in the US, which became a car-loving culture. Then you run into the highways, which changed cars forever, uh, included the stupidity of speed limits. And uh, <laughs> yeah, James, for the record, is firmly anti-speed limit. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm firmly I'm pro driver education, which North America does not do. I can't blame the states. Canada is no better. Uh, but train train your drivers, and they can drive faster. That's easy. And you could start with a 16 year old. Their brains are faster than a 40 year old. We'll all be okay. Um, but I, you know, I like the high speed limits in Texas. That's pretty cool. The state does a few things right. Did Stevie? Yeah, that's high true. High speed limits. That's true. Texas forever, baby. It's got uh, torchies. Does That's have oh. the whole, holy trinity right there? Oh man! Fast highways, tacos, and CVP. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that a, a lot. Like I think this is an industry. Like the automotive industry can be related in some ways, in like some kind of fun ways. If you're a writer to the watch industry, and I think they're just approaching their quartz age, where we're going to have more electric cars. We're going to have cars that are that are going to be more accessible to people who don't care about cars at all. They care about accuracy. They care about convenience. That's what Quartz brought to the world. And then I think if you give it a few, you give it a few years, you give it an age or two within its within its genre, a generation, if you will, uh, we'll, we'll start to see a rebirth of new vintage vehicles. I like this take. Me too. I like this take too. And then from a people standpoint, they're the same. You know, the, the folks that I met and, and and are still friends with in the watch industry that are journalists, they love, or in, and in the the car industry are very much the same. They're they're for deep passion, passion they can't help. I, don't, I honestly don't think you get into like writing about or talking about watches or writing about or talking about cars like by accident. It's That's, because you, you're yeah. kind of not wired to do a lot else and, and you're able to create and you're able to, to uh, supply a market that wants something and you know what, like if you can connect your ability and your need, your like unfounded, hard to explain need to make something back to a market that, that would like to read it, then so be it. And I would say right now, uh, is like, if you're into cars, I'm not sure there's been a better time to be an automotive enthusiast. There's car shows everywhere. The best writers in the world are writing uh, for either free or next to free outlets. Please subscribe to Road and Track. Everybody, is this the second time you've plugged this? Without a doubt. I cannot, like I just got the latest issue. It's in my, it's in my bag. 
uh, the 20 feet from here. And it's just, it's, it's Kamisa and it's Sam Smith and it's, uh, it's, it's all these guys and and they're, it's way too good for what they're charging. Like, I know that we do not charge somebody like we do for the magazine for sure. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but I mean, what's two, what does it cost to get to two magazines a year? 30, 60 bucks. Is it 30 bucks for a magazine? What is it? What does a banana cost? Michael? I think it's 35. (laughs) $20. $10. Yeah. You couldn't give your own brother a Hodinky magazine. Um, (laughs) so whatever it is that we charge, like, like, like the, the road tractor is vastly cheaper and like the best writers in the world. And then you look at like what happened with Top Gear. Now you get, uh, uh, the Grand Tour, and you get Top Gear, but with Chris Harris at the top on on BBC, and pe- people like to say it's not what it was, and like I, I can't disagree more. There's so much value there. If you're into watch, if you're into watches, if you're into cars, if you're into cameras, this is a sweet time to be like a nerd. And and I think if I was coming up at like, if I was coming up now, uh, I would say almost no doubt, like a uh, next wave, James would not have touched university. I, I would have, I would move directly into like uh, passion based content production mm. of some sort. Nice. I like all these takes. Same here. These are good takes. Uh, I feel like whiskey takes. We could probably do this forever, but I think what we'll do is we're going to mostly cut this here. We're going to do episode two at some point. But before we do that, uh, Gray and I were chatting ahead of this, and. You're you're a firm believer in strong opinions loosely held. It's become kind of your your mantra. So to go with strong opinions loosely held, Gray and I wanted to make you give a whole bunch of hot takes. So the idea is you get one. All right. I'm gonna list off some categories and you get one just fire thing. from the hip. You get one thing in this category yeah. and it has to do you forever. Oh, I can't change. So you get you get one thing. So if the category is cars. You get one car forever. Oh, I see. Okay, so like like hot picks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really a take. It's the thing for you. In this very moment, though, knowing yeah, that right you, now. you as an individual change moment to moment. Yeah, but right now, if I made you pick, what of these various things okay. would you take yeah, no, and it'd be you. your only one forever? He's in. Okay. Cars. Alfa Romeo Stradale Tipo 33, but I don't know if I fit. I'm 6'3". <laughs> right I've never sat. I've stood next to one. Caveats. This is a car I've never touched that made me feel like starting the McLaren. It is an aggressively beautiful thing. If I don't fit, I'll put it in my living room. (laughs) Perfect. And I'll drive my Jeep around. Camera. Oh, it's a Q. I mean, that's easy. But um, whatever the new Q is, like, if I I don't work anymore, like, if I don't have to produce content... Scare quotes content, yeah, okay. all flashy quotes content. Then uh, um, I, I, you know, I re, uh, a simple film camera, yeah, a film rangefinder. I'm not that picky. All right, if I can afford like an M6, if the world changes and, and M6s are like within range, let's go that range. But otherwise, like if I have to work, it's a Q. All right, that has literally changed my entire like professional existence in the last year. Perfect whiskey. Will it? Will it? Interesting. Yeah. All right. I'm not about like thousands of dollars a bottle, even if you're talking about like a pick one and that's what you yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like Pappy's insane. All right. Uh, Will it is just as good. It's still super expensive if you're a normal person who just wants to like enjoy a drink and, and a uh, great, you know, put on Fleetwood Mac or whatever in, in the evening. But like, will it for sure. That's my next question. Record. One record. One record forever. Yep. All moods, all times, all seasons. One record. Helplessness Blues, Fleet Foxes. Ooh. 
has okay. grown ocean. I just said it, and I have a chi- I got a chill. Has grown ocean. Grown ocean. I used to listen to when I first moved to Vancouver. It's the first time that I was ever like out of my element, away from home, on my own, in a new space, an entirely different aesthetic. I'm surrounded by mountains and ocean, and I would I would go on walks um, from my job, which at the time was like stressful, and I wasn't sure it was like what I should be doing with my time. And I would find this like deep solace in walking around near the ocean, around other people who are just out to enjoy like a decent day in Vancouver, of which there's 55 a year, yeah, if you're lucky. And yeah, grown ocean for sure. And seeing Fleet Foxes in Stanley Park in Vancouver was next level. Meal? That's a tough one. Yeah, is this his final meal or is he eating the same thing like forever? Ooh, that's true. Yeah, it's a tough one because I'm not a foodie. So any of my answers answers are going to be like largely trash. <laughs> All right, let's let's. I'm uh, a cereal man at heart. I haven't uh, eaten cereal right. in years. What's your favorite cereal? There it is. Honey Nut Cheerios. Oh, strong. Or Fruit yeah, that's a strong jam. Fruit Loops, great Fruit Loops for the weekend. It's a great Honey customized. Nut Cheerios for the work week. Fruit Loops are party Cheerios. <laughs> yeah, so, for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> there's your, ta- there's, there's there's your tattoo Cheerios. for 2020. Why don't they have party them? Cheerios? Wow, that's good. Party <laughs> Cheerios for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, that's it. I'm done for the week. But I mean, like, yeah. For, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's pro- my Sign favorite off. my favorite meal. If I was in a new city, especially a city that like could do steak, then it's steak frites. Okay. So if I'm in New York, that's Lucienne first and yeah. first. I'm assuming if I say city, you're saying Vancouver. City forever. I could live in Vancouver and never leave and yeah. be perfectly happy. And, okay. and I say that as someone who like, one of the deepest pleasures in my life is travel. Okay. What's uh, your favorite book? Or one book forever? Blue Meridian. Blue Meridian? Yeah. Okay. Uh, or, I mean, read any Matheson is what I would say. Okay. If, if someone's going to take, like, read Blue Meridian if you want. Watch the documentary, which is called yeah. um, Blue Water, White Death, uh, Peter Kimball. Uh, nothing less of a hero, but uh, Matheson. Blue Meridian right. is a gorgeous book also about finding the first great white underwater. Mm. I, like, that level of writing doesn't usually intersect with, like, adventure topics. Yeah. And that one, or Snow Leopard, which, of course, he won. Yeah some very prestigious award that I'm blanking on right now, but uh, yeah. All right. I got, I got two more for you. Film. One film for, for it. We are both big fans of uh, the rewatchables. Yeah. Uh, from the ringer. It's, I don't know how this the show gets ultimate better. ultimate rewatchable. Yeah. Um, I got to two real quickly, which All seems right. like a cop out. You can get out. both. That's fine. You can get both. They're New from York Times entirely different eras. So I would say North by Northwest. Oh yeah. Um, which I've seen maybe, I don't know, maybe 30 times. Movie's incredible. And, uh, and, and keeping, keeping in my, you know, North by Northwest is a long film. Let's go with another long one. I would say, uh, it's tough. No Country for Old Men. Ooh, strong choice. So it's a bummer because neither of those hit my favorite cinematographer nor my favorite director. Uh, but I think if I, I could, I could probably watch... No Country for Old Men, like, once a month for the rest of my life. All right. The older I get, the less I want to watch new things. Okay. Which it seems like a problem that feels like attrition. Yeah. It's all right. Um, atrophy, if you yeah. will. Uh, but, yeah, North by Northwest, if you haven't seen it. Um, my favorite, Hitchcock. Not his best movie, but my favorite. Absolutely. Rope is his best film. 
Um, I completely agree with yeah, that, by rope, the way. Rope, Should we do a whole episode about rope? Rope is insane. You two can do that. <laughs> crazy, um, crazy out on the rope cast. And then, yeah, and then with No Country for Old Men, I mean, it's a modern film that plays like an old Western in terms of pace. It, it feels an hour too long, but then when it's over, you're like, you're left with this like sense of dread and foreboding and emptiness. That, that last like, is, shot is stupid good. The whole thing yeah, uh, is great. And then, yeah, I could go, we could do another 10, so might as well leave it at two. All right. Uh, last one, the obvious one, one watch, you get one, your vacant stare into the distance. I love it. Tells me that this hurts you. Could we do like modern and vintage? Sure. Is that too much of a bend? Sure. I'll let you do modern and vintage. One modern watch, one vintage watch. Yeah. So it'd be a 5164. You pick the metal. Yeah. Uh, would be my modern, but I mean like the absolute like steel on the, on the green. Yeah, I could probably wear forever. It's yeah, kind of like, you're going. I think that you're going. You're going A. Yeah, fifty-one sixty-four A. I think that suits my vibe pretty well. Tiffany and stamp. And I think I could be. Uh, yeah, sure. Sure. If I could. Right. I mean, I'm not that picky. All right. I like the Tiffany. It's not me. All right. Um. And then vintage, I like a uh, solid gold GMT Master too. Oh yeah, ever uh, sorry, a solid gold GMT Master. Yeah. That's the move right there. I think that's the way I would go. Like kind of you go cast, on, you Castro go on, spec. You go in uh, Jubilee. Root, root beer, you go on black. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jubilee. Oof. I blame I blame my my, you know, uh buddy and uh and and never ending source of uh Instagram fun, uh, James Lambden. He loaned me his for some time his uh brown uh root beer. It's a one. dangerous thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was kind of him. I was I was we we met in Miami last year and I was I was, was decked. I was decked out in uh, <laughs> a solid Hawaiian shirt, and he threw me this watch, and I wore it for I don't know, probably about a week. And man, if I could afford it, that's a that's a like watches for me is 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 a lot like cars. Like I think you you need the minivan, you need the the SUV, whatever it is, like to make your life functional. But think about what makes your life happy. What makes you like zesty to get out of bed to not spend the whole day watching YouTube videos or whatever, like go, go out and make like YouTube videos in front of your own eyes. Like, like make an attempt at least. There we go. Getting like, zesty. YouTube I, videos in front of your own eyes. I have good days and I have bad days with that concept, but yeah, like uh, a solid gold sports watch is so much fun. It's, and it's so antithetical to the concept. Yeah. And, and it really starts to lean in on the idea of like, are these things that we need? No. Are these things that like validate something about what it is to have our brain chemistry? Oh yeah. Mm. Perfect. Mr. Stacy, this has been real. My apologies. We're gonna have to for, do this again. Uh, having I, to edit this, Gray? I really feel like I we look forward do this. to it. Sticking my teeth in. This this could be like a six <laughs> hour. Magnum episode. opus, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a uh, random random one for we'll sure. We'll do part two, right, Gray? We'll see. Some, we'll see. Maybe. All right. Let's you, look at the metrics. Yeah. Yeah. People, listen to it. If you listen to it enough, we'll let James come this back. This is at the end of the episode. This isn't valuable to anyone. Yeah, no, there are seven people <laughs> listening to this, and all seven of them are our parents. For more information, yeah. click this link. Yeah, right. <laughs> Swipe up. Thanks for listening, Mom. <laughs> love you, Mom. Love you, Mom. Love you, Mom. We're ending on love you, moms? Yeah, Aww. We are. We're going to end on a triple love you, Mom. That's great.
This week's episode was recorded at Hodinki HQ in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Quarhonen. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.